Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com premium. It only costs $5 a month. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation, to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. The 2023 stock market rally continued again this past week with all of the major stock market indexes posting gains. In fact, the Dow Jones is bringing up the rear. It's only up 2.5% so far on the year. S&P, on the other hand, is up 6%. Russell 2000, 8.5%. And the NASDAQ composite up 11%. So what's happening so far is a reverse rotation where the growth-oriented names are doing much better than the value-oriented names. That is the mirror image of what happened in 2022. So really what's going on is speculators are buying the most beaten-down names. They are playing this bounce. The reason that the NASDAQ is up more than the Dow Jones in 2023 is because the NASDAQ was down a lot more than the Dow Jones in 2022. But the fundamentals that drove that rotation in 2022 still exist. So the reason that the NASDAQ was so weak in 2022, that reason hasn't changed. So the NASDAQ should still be weaker in 2023. And in my opinion, it will be once this dead cat bounce is over. In fact, if you remember last year, I had anticipated a Santa Claus rally. It looked to me that based on how the markets were handicapping the situation with the Fed and inflation, that we would have got a Santa Claus rally in December. And that never really happened. It looks like Santa Claus came late and we're having the rally in January. Now, originally, I thought that we'd get that Santa Claus rally in December. And then by the end of the year or January, it would reverse. Well, now, since we didn't get the rally until January, it may not reverse until later in the year, maybe in February or potentially March. But I still think the rally is going to reverse. In fact, look at what's happening to the more speculative NASDAQ stocks. The Kathy Wood ARK Innovation ETF is up 29% so far in 2023. Now, of course, this index was down the most in 2022, and that's why people are buying it. But it's the lowest quality type companies that are being bought, the most heavily shorted names, 
are being covered. In fact, the same thing is happening in the crypto space. That's why Bitcoin is up about 30%, I think, on the year. It's trading at just around 23,000 right now. And a lot of people are making a big deal about this huge rally in Bitcoin. I think so far, Bitcoin is off to its best annual start ever, but it's only because it's coming off of one of its worst years ever. And even if you look at this huge rally up to 23,000, you have to keep it in perspective because the high was almost 70,000. So when you look at the all-time high, we've barely recovered from last year's low. But again, there's nothing substantive to this rally. It is not supported by the fundamentals. It is simply noise. You're seeing bear market rallies. That's it. And they're going to come to an end. But one of the trends that I do think has legs, and it's something that I have been predicting, is that foreign stocks are outperforming domestic stocks and emerging markets are outperforming developed markets. Because if you look at what's happening so far internationally, global stocks are up, I think, about 8.5% on the year, which is ahead of the 6% rise in the S&P 500. And if you just look at emerging markets, there you're up about 10%. So that's better than the developed foreign markets. And again, much better than the S&P 500. So we are still seeing a continuation of the move from domestic to foreign and from developed to emerging markets. Those trends, I also believe, will continue throughout the year, as will the move into gold and gold-related equities. That is also happening. Now, gold was relatively flat on the week, as were gold stocks. I think actually both inched slightly lower on the week. Gold settled at about $1,928 an ounce. We did make a new high for the move intra-week, but we got a sharp drop, about 20 bucks or so, on Thursday. So we gave back some of those gains. Gold is up about 6% so far on the year, which is matching the return on the S&P 500. But if you look at gold stocks, the GDX, even though it wasn't even up this week, is still up 12.8% so far on the year, which means gold stocks are beating the NASDAQ. But the bigger difference between the rally in gold stocks and the rally in the NASDAQ is I think not only is the gold stock rally sustainable, but it's going to accelerate. I think these stocks are going to rally even faster later in the year than they are right now, whereas the rally in the NASDAQ is completely unsustainable. I think we're going to reverse, and before too long, NASDAQ stocks are going to be lower on the year. I think the same thing is going to be true with the U.S. bond market, which so far on the year, bonds are also rallying. So you've got a rally in stocks and a rally in bonds. But this follows one of the worst years in history for the stock and bond market combined. So we are getting this January bounce. But I expect that the rally in bonds will be just as short-lived, maybe even more so than the rally in stocks. And in fact, potentially, I think bonds could have a worse year in 2023 than stocks, although I think tech stocks, the NASDAQ in particular, will fare far worse than the overall averages because I think the rotation that started last year out of momentum-type stocks is going to continue this year.
But really what's driving the move up in both stocks and bonds is the weakness in the economy because we continue to get more weak economic data and not just weak economic data on the economy, but there's still hope that inflation has peaked and the lower numbers that we've been seeing when it comes to month over month or year over year inflation rates, that this trend is permanent and therefore the inflation battle is over. The Fed can declare victory and start cutting rates and easing up on policy. All of this is what is creating the narrative that is driving this move up in both stocks and bonds. But I think as the year progresses, it's going to be more obvious that inflation hasn't peaked, that the Fed is nowhere near victorious in this fight, and the economy is actually going to be even weaker than the markets think. The markets think the economy will be weak enough to restrain the Fed, but not so weak that it puts a big dent in corporate earnings. They're wrong. The economy is going to be much weaker than investors think, and it's going to have an even bigger impact on earnings than investors think. But inflation is going to be much higher than anybody thinks, and that is going to really complicate the situation for both the Federal Reserve and the economy. In fact, I want to point out some of the weak economic data that was released this week, which I think was part of the reason that we got a rally in the markets. First, on Tuesday, we got the Richmond Fed Manufacturing Index for the month of January, and the consensus forecast was for minus three, and that would have been worse than the plus one that we got in December. Well, we got a minus number, but a much bigger minus number. We got negative 11, which was way worse than even the lowest number in the consensus range which went from a plus three to a minus five. This is also significant in that it's a January number. So it's the first month of a new year and we're getting off to a bad start. But then we got a whole bunch of economic data that came out on Thursday, beginning with the first look at Q4 GDP. And there we actually got a better than expected number. The consensus was for a 2.7% increase and we ended up with 2.9, but that was well within the range of forecasts, which went from a low of 1.2 to a high of 3.5. It was a deceleration from the 3.2% from the third quarter, but the final two quarters of the year more than offset the back-to-back -back declines that we had in quarterly GDP during the first half of the year. So taken as a whole, GDP was still up by 2.1% on the year. Now, remember, everybody refused to acknowledge that the back-to-back -back quarterly declines we got in GDP in the first and second quarter were, in fact, a recession. The experts claimed that it wasn't a recession because we didn't have the required increase in unemployment. And certainly, they have a better case now to make those claims, given that we did apparently get a recovery in the back half of the year, so that for the entirety of the year, we got expansion in GDP. But personally, I don't think we had any real economic growth at all in 2022. I think the main reason that we had 2.1% positive number is because the GDP deflator for the year was too low. 
nominal GDP was up by 9.1% during the year, and they deflated it by 7% to get what they claim to be real GDP growth of 2.1%. But just like with the CPI, the GDP deflator, I believe, dramatically understates what's actually happening with consumer prices. I still think that in 2022, the real increase in prices was north of 15%, which means if we accurately measured prices to determine a deflator for 2022 GDP, we would have in fact seen a massive contraction in the economy. That's what's actually happened. The government is covering it up by cooking the books, but in reality, the economy is shrinking. And that's why consumer sentiment is so low. That's why Biden's popularity is so low. The economy is not growing the way the government claims it is shrinking. It only appears to be growing because the government is lying about the numbers and the media is helping the government get away with it. In fact, the main reason that we even had the increase in GDP in the back half of 2022 was the improvement in the trade deficit. The trade deficit were still huge, just not as huge as before. And there were some temporary factors that helped reduce the trade deficit. One was the strength in the dollar. Well, the strength of the dollar began to reverse sharply in the fourth quarter of last year. And in fact, year to date, the dollar is down again. The dollar index is down about one and a half percent so far this year. In fact, we closed below 102 with a 101 handle, 101.92 to be exact. And so the weakening dollar is now going to worsen the trade deficit. Also, the trade deficit was impacted positively by oil exports because we had all the oil that was released from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve that we were able to export. We're not going to be doing that in 2023. So the trade deficits are going to be getting bigger, and that is going to be subtracting from GDP. In fact, at the same time that we got the GDP numbers for Q4, the government also released the trade deficit for December, and that deficit came in worse than expected. And it represented a significant deterioration from the November deficit, which was originally reported at $83.3 billion. It was actually revised to an even smaller $82.9 billion. But instead of December coming in at $88.5 billion, as had been forecast, it came out at $90.3 billion. So worse than expected and an even bigger increase over the prior month than had been expected. On a month-over-month basis, imports increased by 1.9%, while exports fell by 1.6%. And if this is any indication as to what's likely to happen in January with trade deficit, this does not bode well for GDP going into the first quarter. In fact, if you look at the Atlanta Fed's current estimate for Q1 GDP, it's all the way down at 0.7. And I think by the time we actually finish Q1, we're going to end up with another negative quarter, just like we had a negative quarter in Q1 of 2022. However, I don't expect to see a stronger back half of 2023 the way we saw in 2022. I think the U.S. economy is going to get progressively weaker 
as the year goes on. And I expect the second half of 2023 to be even worse than the first half. Now, we got more bad economic news that was also released on the same day that we got the GDP numbers. We got the Chicago Fed National Activity Index for November, and that came in at minus 0.51, and that was a weakening of the minus 0.05 that we had in November. And while new home sales were not quite as weak as expected during December, they were looking for 614,000 new home sales. We got 616,000, but the prior month was revised way down from 640,000 all the way down to 602,000. And even though we got a bounce in pending home sales that were released the following day, the estimate was for a 1% drop in December that would have followed an originally reported 4% decline in November they revised November's decline to a positive 2.6. And in December, we got a positive 2.5. But despite that bounce, year-over-year pending home sales were down 34.3% in all of 2022. And that is the biggest drop in annual pending home sales ever since they started keeping track of the number. And then finally on Thursday, we got the personal income and spending numbers for December. And these also came out weaker than expected. The expectation was for a 0.2% rise in personal income, and we got that, but they revised down the prior month's original estimate of a rise of 0.4 to a rise of just 0.3. And personal spending was supposed to fall by 0.1. Instead, it fell by 0.2. But they also revised down what was originally reported as a 0.1% rise in November. They've reversed that. It's now a 0.1% decline. Now, the inflation numbers that are a part of the personal income and spending numbers pretty much came out as expected. The month-over-month increase in the PCE was a tad hotter than expected. They were looking for an unchanged number, and instead they got a rise of 0.1%. But the year-over-year numbers hit expectations exactly. They were looking for an increase of 5%. They got an increase of 5%. The same thing for the core. The month-over-month core PCE was expected to rise by 0.3, and it rose by 0.3. That was a bit hotter, though, than the 0.2 from the prior month. And the year-over-year core PCE slipped as expected from 4.7% in November to 4.4% in December. Remember, the core CPE is the Fed's favorite inflation measure. And I think the reason it's the Fed's favorite is because it's the least accurate in that it understates inflation the most. And that's why the Fed likes it the most. But even if you look at this number, the year-over-year increase is more than double the Fed's supposed 2% target. We came in at 4.4. But because the number is closer to 2% than it had been in the past, even though it's miles away, the markets are still looking at this as a positive number. But in reality, it confirms that the Fed is nowhere near victory when it comes to the inflation fight. And that's because it hasn't nearly increased interest rates enough to put out this inflation fire. But more importantly, the federal government hasn't cut spending at all. In fact, it's increased government spending. So the inflationary forces that underlie the economy are actually getting stronger, not getting weaker. 
It's just that investors haven't been able to figure this out yet. But I want to change gears and talk a little bit about politics. First of all, the Justice Department filed an antitrust lawsuit against Google. Now, as a user of Google, you may think, what could they possibly be doing that is a violation of antitrust? After all, they give away the product. You don't pay anything to use Google as a search engine. The service is provided for free. The whole idea of antitrust is supposed to be that businesses are ripping off their customers, their monopolies, and they're charging too much, and the government has to come in and protect the consumer by breaking up these monopolies. Well, in the case of Google, it's not the individual consumers that the government is supposedly worried about and trying to protect. It's advertisers. So in other words, it's other businesses who want to advertise on Google that the government is supposedly protecting because the government is saying that Google is some kind of monopoly and as a result, it is ripping off other businesses by gouging them with monopoly type prices. First of all, this is absurd because Google does not have a monopoly on advertising. Even if it had a monopoly on search, which it doesn't, it's certainly the number one search engine out there, but you can do searches without using Google. But even if you concede that it's a near monopoly when it comes to search, because the vast majority of people who search the internet use Google, they're not even close to a monopoly on advertising. Businesses that want to advertise have all sorts of ways to advertise, not just on the internet, because you can advertise on the internet without advertising on Google, but you have all sorts of ways to advertise that don't involve the internet at all. So to say that somehow Google, even if it dominates search, has a monopoly on advertising is absurd. And I've talked on this podcast in the past about why I think all the antitrust laws should be repealed. They do more harm than good. In fact, I don't even know if they do any good. They only do harm. They end up making U.S. businesses less efficient, less productive, they end up driving costs higher, and therefore consumers end up paying higher prices as a result of antitrust than they otherwise would have paid in the absence of antitrust. So in other words, antitrust laws achieve the opposite of their objective. They're supposedly there to protect consumers from higher prices, but instead they end up preventing consumers from enjoying lower prices. So now Google is going to have to waste a bunch of resources, time and money, fighting off this frivolous lawsuit by the Justice Department. That's money that could have been spent more productively in ways that would have benefited their customers. Instead, they're forced to waste the money. Ultimately, the customers are going to pay the price. And if the government ends up winning and somehow breaks up the advertising arm of Google, I'm sure in the end, advertisers are going to end up paying higher prices, not lower prices, and it might even end up backfiring on individual consumers who may end up having to pay for a service that they once got for free. But even more ridiculous than this week's antitrust lawsuit filed by the federal government against Google was last week's recommendation from a San Francisco reparations committee 
on the appropriate reparations that the city of San Francisco should pay to its African-American residents. Now, first of all, San Francisco didn't really have slavery because the state of California wasn't even admitted to the Union until 1850, and it was admitted as a free state. So it was opposed to slavery. And in fact, not only did they not have slavery in California or San Francisco, but they didn't have any official laws on the books that targeted African-Americans for discrimination. So as ridiculous as the concept of reparation is on a national level, it's even more ridiculous for the city of San Francisco. So for the purpose of this podcast, I just want to focus on the absurdity of the recommendation itself rather than on the absurdity of the entire concept of reparations in the first place. First of all, the recommendation itself comes from the San Francisco African-American Reparations Advisory Committee. And that committee is comprised of 14 people, every single one of them African-American. Now, there is some diversity in gender. Looks like it's about 50-50 men and women, but all of the men and women are African-American. And obviously, all of them will benefit from the recommendations of the committee. But in the first place, how can you have all 14 people on this committee being African-American? The city of San Francisco is only 5% African-American. So how is it that 100% of this committee is African-American? It seems to me that there is some racial discrimination going on here. I can't believe that no white people applied for a job on this committee. I also can't believe that there are no Asians who applied for jobs. In fact, the largest minority group in San Francisco are Asian Americans. They're about a third of the city's population. So there are a lot more Asians living in San Francisco than African-Americans. Why are none of the Asians on this committee? After all, it's the Asians and the whites who are going to have to pay the reparations. Shouldn't they have some kind of voice in making the recommendations? How can the recommendations come solely from the people who are going to benefit from the recommendations and the people who actually pay the cost of the recommendations? They don't even have a say. So forget about the obvious discrimination that took place with respect to creating this committee. But what about the obvious bias of the committee members themselves? After all, if they all are going to gain the benefit from the recommendation, clearly that biases them. In fact, in my mind, to the extent that you're going to have a committee to try to determine how much money we should pay to African-Americans, there should be no African-Americans on that committee. They should all have to recuse themselves from bias because they're the ones that are going to benefit from the recommendation that's being made. So how are they going to be objective, especially when you actually look at the absurdity of what has been recommended? According to this committee, San Francisco should pay to every African-American who qualifies a lump sum of $5 million. Now, that's not all of it, because in addition to getting $5 million, they also want to eliminate all consumer debt. 
So if you've got credit card debt, if you've got student loans, if you've got auto debt, they want to eliminate that too. They don't want you to have to repay that debt out of the $5 million. No, they want to give you a clean slate. They want to make sure that you're debt-free and then you get $5 million. But that's not all. They also recommend other tax breaks that would excuse African-Americans from paying a lot of types of taxes. Some of them are federal taxes, so I don't even know how you can accomplish that on a city level. But also, they're talking about 250 years of special benefits for African-Americans trying to guarantee them an income of something like $100,000 a year or close to it, adjusted for inflation, I would imagine, for the next 250 years. So why should African-Americans who haven't even been born yet, who aren't going to be born for another 100 or 200 years, still be getting reparations from slavery? The whole thing is absurd on its face. And one of the things that makes it even more ridiculous is who's going to have to pick up the tab for all this money? Because as I just mentioned, about a third of the residents of San Francisco are Asian. And there was a lot more discrimination against Asians in California and San Francisco, certainly, than against blacks. There were actually laws on the books that discriminated against the Chinese. So if anybody should get reparations, it's the descendants of the Chinese who really were discriminated against in California, not the descendants of African-Americans where California didn't do anything wrong. In fact, California was a free state. But of course, nobody is entitled to reparations for sins that were visited upon their distant relatives. Sure, 150 years ago, San Francisco had laws on the books that discriminated against Asians. But the Asians who are living in San Francisco today, they're not being discriminated against. And therefore, they're not entitled to reparations, but they also should not be required to pay reparations to anyone else. In fact, this is where it really gets crazy because I actually happened to be on a clubhouse chat. My brother was in the chat and that's what kind of got me into it. But it was on the topic of reparations. And there was an African-American woman that was talking favorably about this program. And as a matter of fact, the San Francisco Chronicle, when they did an article about it, they called it a bold plan. Bold? It's an insane plan. How can a newspaper legitimize something so absurd and call it bold? But in any event, this woman was arguing in favor of the plan. And my brother quickly did some numbers. And according to him, every man, woman, and child in San Francisco was going to have to pay over $300,000 to cover just the lump sum $5 million per African-American living in San Francisco, assuming no additional African-Americans move to San Francisco, which, of course, is an asinine assumption because they're going to be moving from all over the country to get their $5 million bucks. But assuming that the law itself did not encourage immigration to San Francisco for people who wanted to get their $5 million, just based on the current population, it was going to be over 300000 Per person, and that includes little children. This woman said that my brother was being dishonest, that he was making this stuff up because nothing in the recommendation says that the people of San Francisco have to pay the bill, that it's the government 
that has to pay the $5 million, not the people, which shows you how absurd this is, because where did this woman think the government was going to get the money? The government has only one source of money, and that's the people. And at least they can't even pretend that they could print it because San Francisco can't print dollars. If San Francisco wants dollars, they have to raise those dollars in taxes, and they can only tax their own population. So if San Francisco is going to write a $5 million check to every black resident that qualifies, then all the other residents of the city are going to have to cover the cost of that check, which means they're going to move. If you live in San Francisco and you know you're going to be on the hook to pay all this money, you ain't going to stay in San Francisco. You are going to leave. And one of the other things that was so ridiculous about this lady's comment was that she diminished the five million because she said to my brother, I don't know if you know anything about San Francisco, but you can't really live well in San Francisco on a measly five mil. So in other words, she probably thought that they should have gotten more, but that we shouldn't complain about it because it was just five mil. And so what's the big deal about giving the descendants of slaves five mil when it's really nothing? Well, it's something. It's a huge number. I don't know if it's 50 billion or more, but again, it assumes that people don't move into the state in order to qualify for the benefit, which they will do. And in fact, if you look at the eligibility criteria for reparations, it leaves the door wide open for millions of African-Americans to move into San Francisco to overwhelm the city so that they can get their $5 million. Meanwhile, Everybody in San Francisco who is not black is going to leave because they don't want to be on the hook to pay the money. And so San Francisco would be full of African-Americans looking for a check, but there'd be no one to tax. And so to the extent that there were any checks, they would bounce. And of course, the whole thing is absurd, so it's not actually going to get passed. The reason I want to talk about it is to focus on the absurdity of things that governments will contemplate. And, and put forward. If you look at the criteria, one of them is that you're either born or you moved into San Francisco at some time between 1940 and 1996, and you must have lived there for at least 13 years. Now, I don't know why they got 13 years. Why is it at 12? Why is it at 14? Just very arbitrary. But you have to have lived in the city for 13 years. And so if you moved out and you're only there for 10 years, I guess you have to move back in and wait another three years before you can get your $5 million check and all the other benefits. Also, you must be 18 years old. So if you're still 17, well, you got to wait until you're 18, and then you can collect the money. But even if you've never lived in San Francisco, you can still come to San Francisco and get your money if you meet two of the other qualifications on this list. One of them is that you are a descendant of someone who was enslaved anywhere in the United States, obviously not in California because they were a free state. But if you descended from somebody who was a slave, then you could check that box. So I would say that most African-Americans living in the United States today whose ancestors didn't come to America after 1865, they could make a pretty good argument that they descended somewhere along the way from someone who was a slave. And so they could check that box. But another box that you could check if you've never been to San Francisco 
is that you were either personally incarcerated on a drug crime or that you were a direct descendant from somebody else who was imprisoned on a drug crime. In other words, if I went to jail on some drug offense, then as long as I was also the descendant of a slave, I could move to San Francisco and collect my $5 million. But even if I didn't commit a crime myself, but my father, my grandmother did time on a drug offense, that's good enough. I can move to San Francisco and collect my $5 million. Now, if I didn't personally go to jail on a drug offense, nor did any of my direct ancestors go to jail on a drug offense, well, then I have to go out and commit a drug offense so that I can go to jail and then I can get out of jail and go directly to San Francisco and collect my $5 million. Now, the fact that none of the people on this committee bothered to think about the moral hazards of this law, which is incentivizing people to go out and commit drug crimes just so they can go to jail and then get out of jail and go directly to San Francisco and collect their $5 million is completely ridiculous. And again, it shows you that this would end up costing the city of San Francisco billions of dollars, if not hundreds of billion dollars more than they contemplated based on the way the law itself would alter behavior and result in a huge influx of African-Americans to San Francisco and a big exodus of everyone else. And this is a perfect example of the absurdity of everything that government does. Government never bothers to contemplate the consequences of its actions. It's all about intention. And yes, the intention of the reparations bill is somehow to atone from a prior sin. But the effect of the law is going to be a much greater sin. And of course, it's going to end up costing much more than anyone believes, because once you pass the law, people do whatever they can to qualify for the benefit. And so a lot more people end up qualifying for the benefit than the number of people that the legislators believe were qualified at the moment that they actually passed the legislation. Also, as much as I dislike the war on drugs and feel that most drug laws should be repealed and that a lot of African-Americans have been unfairly victimized by the war on drugs, I certainly don't equate the war on drugs to slavery, which is in fact what this committee is trying to say, because they're basically saying that if you have descended from somebody who was incarcerated on a drug crime, that's the equivalent of having descended from somebody who was an actual slave. I want to finish up the podcast, though, by talking about the latest example of police violence. It happened in Memphis, Tennessee, where Tyree Nichols died as a result of the injuries he sustained after being beaten by the five officers that had arrested him, I think for reckless driving. Tyree Nichols was 29 years old and also happened to be African-American. And for some reason, Tyree Nichols' race is a huge part of this story, even though the five former police officers who have now been charged with his murder are also African-American. So you have five African-American policemen arresting one African-American suspect. And somehow the fact that Tyree Nichols was African-American is a big part of this story. 
Why? Because I thought the reason that race was a big issue with respect to George Floyd and his death at the hands of the police was that the police were white and they were racist and they killed George Floyd because he was black and they were racist. But when all of the parties involved are African-American, how is it possible that this could be racial? In fact, the chief of police in Memphis, Tennessee, happens to be an African-American woman. So in this incident, it's pretty clear that race was not a factor, yet it's a big factor in the way this incident is being reported, although not nearly as big a factor as it would have been had those five officers not been black. If they were white, oh my God, this would be a much bigger story than it is, and the outrage would be far greater. But if you actually compare the footage that has been released of this incident to the footage that was released of George Floyd, it's clear that the behavior of the police in this case was much worse than it was with George Floyd. Because after all, George Floyd, while he was restrained by Jarek Chauvin's knee, whether that knee was on his neck or on his back is kind of immaterial to the point I'm making here. But while he was restrained, nobody beat him. He wasn't punched. He wasn't kicked. He wasn't maced or pepper sprayed. They were simply restraining him, waiting for the paramedics to arrive. You can argue that the way they chose to do it was wrong. You can argue that it was negligent, that it may have contributed to Floyd's death. But it was just a restraining technique. In contrast, the five officers this time, while Tyree Nichols was handcuffed and restrained, he was beaten. He was punched. He was kicked. He was sprayed. So the police were actually deliberately trying to harm Tyree Nichols. They were not trying to do that with George Floyd. Now, they both died as a result of this incident. But with respect to George Floyd, I believe that George Floyd's fentanyl use combined with his underlying heart condition played a much larger role in his death than anything that the police did, including Derek Chauvin and his knee. Whereas in this instance with Tyree Nichols, the autopsy makes it clear that Tyree died as a result of his injuries at the hands of the police that it was the bleeding and the injuries that led to his death. Now, he didn't die on the scene. He died three days later, but he would not have died but for the beating that he suffered at the hands of these now former police officers, whereas there's a good chance that George Floyd would have died anyway. Even had Derek Chauvin never restrained him with his knee, he may have died anyway simply due to the drugs in his system, his underlying heart condition, complicated by the added stress of being arrested. But in the case of Tyree Nichols, it was solely the conduct of the police officers that caused his death. But this incident is not going to evoke anywhere near the national outrage that you had with George Floyd because in the George Floyd situation, most of the policemen were white. Whereas in the Tyree Nichols situation, all of the policemen are black. And one of the reasons that the media was claiming that there was so much violence against African-Americans by the police 
is that the police are racist, that the police are white. And we just need more diversity on the police force. If we just hire more African-American police, that somehow that's going to be better for African-American suspects. They're going to be treated better by other African-Americans because clearly they won't be racist. Well, this situation obviously proves that false because here you had five African-Americans beating another African-American to death. And I actually think the push for diversity is now part of the problem in the police force. One of the reasons that incidents like this are more likely to happen, and I'm sure it's very rare, the vast majority of arrests don't go down anywhere near like this one. So I don't want to say that this is typical of the police force anywhere in the world or even in Memphis, but there's always going to be some bad apples in any profession. The problem is that when they happen in the police force, it's a lot worse than let's say if it happens in the private sector, because the police have the power of the law behind them and they are legally authorized to use force. So a bad policeman is inherently a lot more dangerous to the general public than a bad barber or a bad shoe salesman, which is why it's particularly important to make sure that in the hiring process, we only hire the best and we weed out the bad actors. Now, all of that is sacrificed on the altar of diversity, because when you have these police departments that have concluded that the problem is racism and that solution is to have more blacks on the force, and if these police departments are not hiring just based on qualifications, if they're willing to accept lower quality applicants who happen to be black because their main goal is diversity, not excellence, well, then you end up with a police force that is not as good as the one that you would have if race was never a factor in determining who you hired and who you did it. So as a result of the quest for diversity, we sacrifice quality. And as a result, African-Americans are now even more likely to be the victims of police brutality, which again is very typical of government programs. As I've said many times in the past and on this podcast earlier, whenever government looks out to achieve a particular end result, it ends up achieving the opposite. In this case, the government wants to improve the way African-American suspects are treated by the police, so it institutes affirmative action to pursue diversity in the police force, and as a result, African-Americans are now more likely to be brutalized by police than they would have been had we had a less diverse, but a better trained and higher qualified police force. Also, another way that this has backfired is that a lot of more experienced white officers who may have been on this police force probably resign because they're too afraid to continue working in predominantly black areas because they're worried that if something happens, they're going to get accused of being racist. That may also explain why all five of these officers were not just black, but they were all very young because maybe the older, more experienced officers, particularly the white officers, resigned in the wake of what happened to Derek Chauvin. Also, when it comes time to hire new policemen, 
if you're doing so in a predominantly black neighborhood, you're just not going to get the same caliber of applicants as you would if you are hiring officers to serve in a predominantly white neighborhood because so many otherwise qualified white applicants are too afraid to take the risk of policing in black neighborhoods. Also, regardless of whether or not you agree with the verdict in the Derek Chauvin case, one thing that's perfectly clear from all of the body cam footage and all of the testimony is that race played no factor in the motivation behind anything that Derek Chauvin or any of the other officers did. You can listen to all those recordings and not one officer said anything that would lead you to believe that race was a factor or that they would have behaved any differently if George Floyd happened to be white. Now, another thing that the Tyree Nicholas incident has in common with the George Floyd incident is that in both cases, the police were charged with murder. And in the case of George Floyd, Derek Chauvin has already been convicted of murder and is now serving a 22-year prison term for that murder. I always maintained that Chauvin was not guilty of murder, that the most you could say was that Chauvin was guilty of manslaughter. Because in order to be guilty of murder, even second-degree murder, you have to intend to kill the person. If they end up dying as a consequence of something that you did, but it wasn't your intent that that person die, it could never be murder. Now, I think Derek Chauvin was unjustly convicted of murder and he didn't get a fair trial. Now, the same situation applies to the five officers in the Tyree Nicholas situation. They have been overcharged. They have also been charged with second-degree murder. I watched the entire footage, both the body cam footage and the footage that was made available, I think, from a lamp post or something like that. But if you watch the footage, it's pretty clear that the five officers did not intend to kill Tyree Nichols. That doesn't excuse their bad behavior. There is no excuse for their bad behavior. I think they should have been fired and they should be charged criminally. They just should not be charged with second-degree murder because that's not what happened. If you look at the incident, initially, the five policemen are trying to arrest this guy, and they're trying to subdue him. They're trying to cuff him and get him to lie face down on the pavement, and he is not cooperating. He is resisting arrest, and then he actually breaks free of the police, and he runs away. Now, during the initial arrest, when they're trying to get him on the ground and cuffing him, they're not punching him. They're not kicking him. They're just trying to restrain him. It was only after they chased him down. And of course, to chase him down, I think they tased him. Once they did that and they got him on the ground and cuffed him, then they started to beat him. And I think the reason they did that is because they were mad that he ran away and they wanted to punish him for that action. And they decided to punish him by beating him. And that is something that police cannot do because the police are not there to punish people. They are there to arrest people. The punishment is supposed to be delivered by the judge, not by the arresting officer. They are allowed to use force, but only to the extent that it's necessary to subdue the suspect. But once the suspect is subdued, the force ends. The arresting officer neither determines guilt nor imposes punishment. If there's probable cause, he makes an arrest. 
but it's up to a judge and a jury when it comes to punishing that crime to the extent that guilt is proven beyond a reasonable doubt. But in this situation, these officers took the law into their own hands and they decided to punish Tyree Nichols. Did they want him to die? Of course not. They did not beat him to death on the scene. They stopped beating him. An ambulance came. And in fact, the drivers of the ambulance were also African-American. And I think they're contemplating filing charges against them because after they arrived on the scene, they kind of hung out for about 20 minutes while Tyree was on the ground bleeding. They didn't immediately attend to his wounds. In contrast, to George Floyd, when as soon as the paramedics arrived on the scene, they loaded him into the ambulance and they began administering CPR. In this case, the paramedics were not nearly as attentive to the needs of Tyree Nichols, but it's clear that the police didn't try to kill him because if they wanted him dead, they wouldn't have stopped beating him. They wanted to punish him. They wanted him to be hurt. In fact, you can hear them saying that in the video that they wanted to hurt him. They wanted to punish him. They wanted him to regret his decision to try to resist arrest. And that was wrong. But of course, again, nobody wants to talk about the fact that had Tyree Nichols not resisted arrest, had he simply complied with the police, his arrest would have gone by without incident and he would be alive today. Now, again, resisting arrest doesn't excuse the behavior of the police that followed but clearly, had Tyree not resisted, he would be alive. And that is an important message that needs to be sent to the African-American community that, hey, the most important thing is don't resist arrest. If the police try to arrest you, cooperate. And if you cooperate, you're going to survive. Your chances of survival are much greater if you do what the police tell you. If you don't, if you resist arrest and you run away, well, now there's a chance something can go wrong. You might get beaten and you might even end up dying, which is the case with Tyree Nichols. But there's no question that the officers did not have the intention of killing Tyree Nichols. They're not idiots. They would obviously know that if this guy died, they could be in a lot of trouble. Nor do I think they wanted him dead. That's not the punishment that they decided to inflict. They just wanted to beat him. They just got carried away. They beat him too much. Now, they shouldn't have beat him at all. And that conduct alone, I think, is criminal and they should be charged. And the fact that he died as a result of this criminal conduct, these officers should be charged with manslaughter. Now, of course, they need to be tried. They need to have a fair trial. And I'm pretty sure that they're going to get a fair trial. Now, Derek Chauvin wasn't able to get a fair trial because of how racially charged the incident was. But since race won't be a factor in this trial, I think it's far more likely that the officers will have a fair trial. And if they do, they will not be convicted of second-degree murder, but they will be convicted of manslaughter. And if they are, they will get a prison sentence, but there's no way these guys are going to get as harsh a sentence as the one Derek Chauvin got. He got 22 years they're not going to get something like that. They may get something like five to 10 years, maybe even less if they cop a plea rather than force a trial, even though their conduct was worse than Derek Chauvin's. In fact, I think the prosecutors may be able to argue that even if it wasn't the intent of these five officers to kill Tyree Nichol, that they should have known 
that the type of blows that they were subjecting him to could have led to his death. And their conduct was so negligent and showed such careless disregard for human life that even if it wasn't their intent to kill, they should have realized that death was a possibility and therefore maybe a murder charge might be appropriate. It's certainly far more appropriate in this case than it was with the death of George Floyd.